Hello, this is Joyce Chang, Chair of Global Research at JP Morgan, and you're listening to All Into Account, our global cross-asset strategy podcast, where we take a look at the key trends impacting financial markets. In this episode, we highlight our latest JP Morgan Perspectives report, The Great Supply Chain Disruption, where we explore the themes transforming the supply chain and commodity markets, focusing on ASEAN's rise, India's long-term potential, and the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, and the rise in Chino-Latino flows. We call this Globalization 2.0, not deglobalization, not decoupling, or de-dollarization. There has been growing recognition that decoupling is no longer possible or desirable. There's recognition that China is the number one trading partner for 120 countries in the world. But we are seeing that traditional trading patterns are shifting, new trade corridors are emerging, US, European, and Japanese businesses are diversifying investments away from China, and China is increasingly turning towards the emerging markets. Multinational companies are also reassessing their risk tolerance to address government and shareholder concerns on national security issues related to the supply chain. And from a policy perspective, Industrial policy is now on the rise in the G7 countries, mirroring the types of policies that have long been employed by China. So we see the ASEAN and Asian countries benefiting the most from the shifts in the global value chains, but Latin America, particularly Mexico, is well-placed to benefit from nearshoring with the U.S. Meanwhile, the Russia-Ukraine war has permanently reshaped China-Russia trade and global commodity markets, with a diversification of currencies now being used to settle commodity trades, although we think that these fears of de-dollarization are somewhat overstated. So to expand on these points, I am so pleased to be joined by my colleagues in global research from around the world. Joining me today is Sin Bengong, our Chief Economist for ASEAN, who is based in Singapore. Gabriel Lozano, Chief Economist from Mexico and Central America, joining us from Mexico City. Haibin Zhu, Chief China Economist and Head of Greater China Economic Research based in Hong Kong. Our Commodities Strategist, Natasha Kaneva. And from Long-Term Strategy and Strategic Research, Alex Weiss. Well, I'm going to start with Asia first, um, Sin Beng, because in many ways what we've seen is that the ASEAN countries seem to have benefited um, the most and Northern Asia from the shifts in the global um, supply chain. Can you tell us whether you think this is a structural trend that is sustainable and will endure? And um, uh, walk us through just how you are looking at um, how much of the shift has occurred. Thanks, thanks for the questions, Joyce. Um, let me just start with a broad context. I mean, one of the consistent aspects of US-Asia trade is a large import share that has been coming from Asia consistently over the multiple decades. And this has actually been rising in recent years. However, belying the stability of US-Asia trade are material uh, shifts in regional shares, which speak to the evolving nature of production across Asia. In particular, the more developed regions in North Asia have seen a reduction of relative shares since the 1990s, even as China's accession to the WTO in 2000 accelerated its particular regional role. However, even before the escalation in trade tensions in 2018, there had been an increase in relative import shares to the US coming from Vietnam, Taiwan, and other parts of ASEAN since 2015. These trends, in our view, reflect the natural flow of production as it migrates to lower cost and more competitive locations. Indeed, in certain lower end products, including footwear and textiles, this process has been well underway for some years. 
for the tech side of the supply chain, which is what we're really focused on, the shift in production from China, which accounts for close to 30% of global exports, appears to be underway. More recently, um, it is happening relatively gradually. Indeed, aside uh, from the push of the unit, uh, rising unit labor cost structure in China, trade tensions, in our view, have been a fairly important catalyst and impulse uh, for the shift. Um, for the multinationals that have expressed a desire to relocate out of China, not surprisingly, the region stands out as a key destination. The reveal preference in the service for regional relocation is also consistent with what we see in the trade data flow, a large part of which is linked to third-party producers. For instance, U.S. imports of tech-related products, which amounted to close to 500 billion in 2019, have declined materially from China. Um, to a range of about 10 percentage points down uh, relative to its share from 2018, while the region has seen an increase um, of its share to the U.S. by around 9 percentage points over the same period. And somewhat surprisingly, there seems to be little evidence so far of a significant shift in share uh, to the rest of the world, including the EU, LATAM, or, or even Japan. Indeed, the key beneficiaries of the interregional tech production shift have been concentrated in Vietnam, Taiwan, and to a lesser degree, Thailand, Malaysia. However, some of the economies are facing supply-side constraints around land and labor, which makes India a very interesting potential candidate for relocation, as already has been the case with the handset, handset segment. Well, thank you so much, Zinbeng, um, for those insights. Um, let me just follow up. Can you walk us through which countries you think in the ASEAN region will benefit the most and the factors that really are attracting relocation of the supply chain? The primary reason for the limited relocation in, in tech supply chains beyond Asia, in our view, is that the region continues to provide an unusually attractive ecosystem for manufacturing, including a supportive infrastructure for trade flows and comparatively highly, uh, high educational attainment standards, the combination thus providing for a competitive set of unit business costs. The World Bank's Logistics Performance Index indicator captures the overall logistics performance across several dimensions, including customs, infrastructure, international shipments, logistics, and timeliness. In that context, Asia as a whole is strongest among the low to medium income countries, as infrastructure score remains head and shoulders above the other competitive countries. Aside from infrastructure, regional education attainment standards also rank well among its peer group. Standardized PISA scores in China, for example, rank far above those among middle income countries, while Vietnam follows a close second, albeit at a lower income level. Moreover, the rest of the lower to middle income Asia region also rank well above their peer groups in, in that regard as well. Now, with that being said, I'd like now to turn to my colleague Sajid Chinoy, the chief economist who is joining us from India. Sajid, there's been much discussion of India's domestic dividend, which has been characterized as an unprecedented chance for economic development. Can you walk us through the population growth forecast and discuss implications for the labor market? That's a really good question, Sinbang. I think one of the structural advantages that India has in the coming decades uh, you know, is a very young population, uh, which will result in this demographic dividend. Uh, precisely at the time when other parts of the world will witness, you know, both aging populations uh, and declining uh, labor force participation. Uh, uh, now, you can see this in very different ways in India. Uh, you know, the median age in India today is about 28, uh, which is much lower than China at 39 or the U.S. at 38. Uh, about 40% uh, of India's population today uh, is below the age of 25. Uh, and, uh, you know, the ratio of uh, working age to non-working age in India uh, will keep rising for the next two decades. So any which way you cut it, uh, India is, you know, in the midst of this large demographic dividend. Now, this is both an opportunity and a challenge. 
Um, the opportunity is, uh, you know, at a time when uh, population around the world is aging, uh, Indians can fill the gap. And we already have seen this in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, we've seen that uh, India's service exports have increased very sharply. Uh, this is not just software services, but it's now broadening out uh, into business and management consulting, you know, research, legal, accounting, technology. Um, and that's happened in the pandemic uh, in part because, you know, technology has made services that were deemed to be non-tradable tradable. It's also happened because as work from home has become institutionalized in the West, uh, there's been a, a, you know, a re-embracing of offshoring. But it also reflects the fact that as firms uh, you know, experienced uh, or, um, or witnessed tight labor markets uh, you know, in advanced economies and a shortage of workers, uh, they could then turn to you know, India's labor force to fill that gap. So there clearly uh, you know, will be advantages from having a younger population. Of course, the challenge here is going to be uh, you know, to provide jobs to all the young people uh, entering into the labor force and ensure that they're adequately skilled and educated and trained uh, for the jobs of the future. I think at the moment, white collar jobs in India uh, have been flourishing in the last two, three years. Uh, the focus will firmly have to be on blue collar job creation going forward. With many multinationals companies looking to diversify and increase the resilience of their supply chains, how is India positioned to attract foreign investment? How much investment has been forthcoming from the production and incentive measures and what other policy measures are being undertaken to increase competitiveness? So Bang, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, no emerging market without being endowed with, uh, you know, with commodities uh, has been able to grow uh, at a high and sustained pace. Like India will need to grow without sustained export growth. Uh, you know, we've seen this in Asia, for example, and India's own experience uh, between 2002 and 2010 is that when we saw this period of high growth, it was predicated on very strong export growth. Now, of course, that was a period of hyper-globalization where you know, emerging markets plugged into the global uh, you know, export uh, universe uh, and grew strongly in a rising tide, lifted all boats. Uh, India's challenge now is to you know, uh, deliver strong export growth uh, at a time where you know, the world is, uh, is, is de-globalizing or becoming more economically balkanized. Uh, and there's a clear recognition here that for that to happen on the good side, we've seen great progress on the services side, but for that to happen on the good side, uh, India will need to integrate itself more deeply into global supply chains. Uh, now, the government uh, you know, is aware of this clearly and has, and has undertaken several measures over the last few years uh, to do so. This began with a, a corporate tax cut in 2019 uh, to make India a more attractive destination for multinational companies. Uh, over the last three years, there's been a big push on, on physical infrastructure, roads, uh, bridges, highways, railways, uh, to, to improve uh, competitiveness, you know, which is needed uh, you know, for, for, for just-in-time manufacturing. And then, of course, there was uh, a production-linked incentive scheme, uh, which is a subsidy that's provided based on uh, output levels being reached. So there are several measures that have been tried we're seeing uh, some traction in uh, a few sectors, but we obviously need for this to, to broaden out uh, so that India can um, broaden out and deepen out so that India can, can, can attract uh, you know, a meaningful amount of the China plus one investment that is expected to happen in Asia uh, in time to come. Thank you so much. And now I'm going to turn to talk about Latin America. 
Um, and I'm going to come to Gabriel Lozano, who is our chief economist for Mexico, and have the pleasure of being with him for our Mexico Opportunities Conference. So, Gabriel, um, you've come out with a new note. Can you tell us about uh, the extent to which nearshoring flows to Mexico have increased over the last year? And what are the prospects for future investment? Is this a game-changing moment for Mexico? Uh, thank you, Joyce, for your questions. I think uh, these are very important points to discuss when we're talking about nearshoring and uh, uh, the global relocation of investments. And uh, the first point that I want to make is that this is going to be a very gradual process. Uh, investment recovery in Mexico has had more to do with the pent-up demand in the past few years in the post-pandemic. We think that going forward, investment will continue to move north, will continue to increase gradually. Uh, we're seeing great opportunities, but mostly in the areas in which, in which Mexico is an expert. We've seen that manufacturing exports, FDI related to manufacturing, has been very strong uh, for the past, in fact, 30 years in NAFTA started. So this is mostly about the NAFTA issue, North America issue, rather than the near shoring alone, we've seen that Mexico has gained a lot of presence and cost optimization issues are also related to uh, how NAFTA has been designed and deployed. Uh, on that regard, we are uh, comfortable in thinking that this will be a gradual process. So far, we haven't seen so much. I mean, evidence remains uh, scarce in terms of what uh, we are going to see in the short term. And in fact, numbers as recent as the first quarter for uh, 2023 in terms of FDI were a bit discouraging. We're disappointing in terms of new investment. And that, in our view, confirms that this is going to be a slow process. Uh, most of the money that we saw on FDI uh, were, uh, was related to um, existing projects, to reinvestment of profits from existing companies uh, or, or companies that have been investing in Mexico heavily in the past 30 years, while at the same time, uh, there was a lot of transferences between companies of the same groups. So in that regard, that basically validates our view that this is going to be a, a slow cooking process. Um, Still, what we expect is that FDI will stabilize around 35 billion in the medium term, which is, to, to say the, the least, uh, um, relatively positive, considering that at some point a few years back, we expected FDI to be closer to 25 billion. So this improvement is... Uh, has a lot to do with this revival of investment, the revival of manufacturing exports, and at the same time uh, confirms the importance of having an agreement uh, within the North American economies in terms of investing in the long term. Uh, and, and that's, uh, I think, the most important uh, thing, uh, thing to, to stress on, on, on this regard. But it's important also to mention that looking at the share of U.S. imports uh, in the last 10 years, there has been an, a gradual rotation um, out of uh, the, the usual suspects. And we've seen that there's been gains in not only North America, but also in, in Central America. Also, uh, Southeast Asia and Europe have been important winners in terms of having a part of uh, total uh, exports going to the U.S. And that basically tells us that it's not only about uh, geographical location. It has a lot to do with the strategic reconfiguration of investments and uh, as well in terms of the value added that can be allocated in certain areas in which you have big opportunities. Mexico is big in, in the auto sector. It's big in uh, manufacturing overall. And these advantages will be positive uh, when, when we think about this reconfiguration and, and the nearshoring. Thank you so much, Gabrielle. Let me just ask you to talk about the sectors in Mexico that are attracting the most investment and what you see for the prospects of Mexico to move beyond manufacturing exports to high value added products. You know, in particular, there's been a lot of focus on the energy sector. How are you seeing the prospects for Mexico to compete in renewable energy production? 
That's also a very good uh, question uh, uh, and, and a very relevant uh, to, to underscore, Joyce, uh, thinking about which sectors are the most important in which uh, Mexico is expected to win. I already mentioned that it's about manufacturing, but we are expected to uh, uh, to observe what we think is going to be the main winners is, is in which Mexico is already a big expert. What we mentioned about the auto sector, when we talk a lot about appliances and electronics in general, this is where Mexico has been uh, the most important country in the region. In, 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 in the investment that we've seen from an FDI perspective and also from domestic perspective investment, we've seen that gross fixed investment has been catching up fast. There was a big backlog during the pandemic, and now these projects have been basically catching up. A lot of um, uh, improvements in terms of exports going to the US and the rest of the world. But going forward, it seems that Mexico will continue to um, uh, facilitate a lot of the exports related to these sectors. Now, Mexico already has an important corridor, which is the NAFTA corridor. And now you could say that is the USMCA corridor, which is basically the north part of the country that is close to the US and a corridor going to the south and the center, uh, uh, bringing um, basically most of the production from the center to the north of the country and eventually exports to the US and Canada. And that is what we call the, the, the NAFTA or the USMCA corridor. That's where we are seeing uh, the fair share of the new investments. That is, investors are trying to make the most of these opportunities and the fact that Mexico has a lot of expertise on, this, on these areas. Now, thinking about the involvement of other regions in the country, that's what might be a big change, the structural change that we continue to, to expect in the next few decades. But this is going to be taking time because Mexico needs to improve on infrastructure, needs to improve in terms of uh, uh, rule of uh, law and, and property rights, and these issues will slow mainly these projects that I'm telling you about that are outside the usual suspects in the in the corridor from the north to the center. Uh, an important challenge that you mentioned as well, and a point that you mentioned is issues related to energy, clean energy and ESG. And I think that that's a big challenge in Mexico. We've seen that there's been uh, some actions from uh, USMCA authorities potentially requesting a panel uh, to uh, discuss um, um, anti uh, or less friendly policies on energy and mainly electricity that probably are scaring investors a little bit in, in terms of what is the certainty in which we think uh, uh, about projects in, on, on renewable energy, private sector involvement. We've seen that PPPs in Mexico have been scarce in the last few years. So probably this is going to revive in the medium term as we think about the political transition as well in the next few years. Uh, but as we stand right now, I think that firms will continue to exert pressure in terms of the mandates related to ESG. And at the same time, thinking a little bit about incentives from companies to invest more heavily on uh, green energies and, and, and environmental friendly uh, projects. So we are more comfortable in saying that this is long term. It's going to take time. But we are confident that there will be pressure enough to uh, improve the, the quality of the projects in which Mexico is involved when we think about manufacturing. Thank you so much, Gabrielle, for those comments. I want to come um, back to Asia and come to Hai Binju, who is our chief economist for China based in Hong Kong. So when we talk about deglobalization, reglobalization, globalization 2.0, what does this all mean for China? How have their trade patterns changed? Joyce, thanks for the question. In recent years, traditional trading patterns have been disrupted in favor of emerging new trade corridors. For example, uh, G3 economy are diversifying investment away from China. China is diversifying trade toward emerging markets. Russia is trying to build new trade routes that do not pass through waters controlled by the West. 
We call this globalization 2.0, rather than deglobalization, decoupling, or de-dollarization. Such a new process has a significant impact on China. First, China's export share in the U.S. market has declined since 2018, with the lost market share taken by other Asian economies, Mexico, and Canada. But the U.S. trade deficit with China has not narrowed. Second, China's global export share did not decline. Instead, China's share of global exports increased by three percentage points since the onset of the global pandemics. This was due to China's exports in medical equipment and tech products. Reorientation of China's exports is also obvious in this year's trade data. While China's export to G3 economy has been softening, China's export to Russia, Latin America and Africa has risen to offset the weakness in the global final demand. In particular, China-Russia trade linkage have grown substantially since Russia-Ukraine war, and Russia now imports more than 50% of its machinery and electric equipment from China. In terms of products, a notable change this year is China's auto exports, especially new energy vehicles, spiked and surpassed Japan to become the largest auto exporter. This year. Thank you so much, Haibin, for sharing with us、um, your insights. And I want to now talk about the currency.、Um, you know, all this talk about de-dollarization. How has Renminbi internationalization development evolved? How do you see it evolving going forward? Joy, this is a good question.、Uh, RMB internationalization can be divided into several stages. The first stage is 2010 to 2015. Mainly through promoting RMB usage in the cross-border trade settlements, marked with the IMF decision to include RMB in the SSDR in 2015. In 2015 to 2017, there was a pause and partial reversal in the process. Then, since 2018, the second wave RMB internationalization mainly focused on capital account openness for institutional investors. And RMB assets were included in global equity and bond indexes. This year, CNY usage continued to grow for China's own cross-border transactions. If we take into account both cross-border trade settlements and portfolio investment, the RMB share surpassed the U.S. dollar for this year. Nonetheless, the progress in RMB internationalization is not equivalent to de-dollarization. CNY is only 2.3 percent of SWIFT payments. Compared to the U.S. dollar share, 43 percent and Euro share, 32 percent, and this is unlikely to change given China's capital control. While marginal de-dollarization is to be expected over the coming five to ten years, faster or deeper de-dollarization would require a serious adverse shock to the U.S. dollar market and an intensification of efforts to position RMB as a viable alternative. Which is not in our baseline scenario. Thank you so much, Haibin,、um, for those insights. Let me come now to the broader topic of global commodities, and here we have seen some real shifts、um, in patterns with、um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I'm turning now to Natasha Kaneva, who is our、um, new head of commodity strategy. Natasha. How has Russia's invasion of Ukraine redirected the flow of various commodity markets, and what are Russia's strategic goals and infrastructure objectives at this stage? Thank you, Trish, for having me. This is an excellent question.、Um, so we're now more than it's almost 18 months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the war 
you know, clearly has permanently reshaped the global commodities markets. So the most immediate and the most visible impact of the Ukraine war was Russia's rerouting of its energy exports away from Europe and towards the east and the south. Uh, Europe pivoted west. So Russia appears to be very strategic. Uh, so it's uh, it's pursuing a three-pronged strategy where the country is looking to build the new trade routes that are bypassing uh, the waters controlled currently by the West. Uh, second, it tries to de- it's trying to de-dollarize its energy exports. And the third, uh, it's trying to open new markets to diversify its exports away from China. So as Russia creates new trade routes, it is increasingly focused east. It's looking to expand its um, its ports in the very far east of the country and open the Vladivostok Chennai Maritime Corridor. So, so this is the corridor that will connect Russia's east coast port of Vladivostok with India's Hindustan Petroleum and Indian Oil Corporation, which is located in the east coast of India. Uh, why they're doing that? It's because it will take only 40 days of travel rather than the 60-day journey today from St. Petersburg through the Suez Canal to India's west coast, where the giant uh, Nayara Energy and Reliance industry Industries oil refining complexes are located. So the second step that Russia is pursuing is to create a new trade route, which is the terrestrial trade route, which is pointing southward. Uh, it is the so-called International North-South Transport Corridor. So this is via the Caspian Sea that passes through Azerbaijan and Tehran to India. Uh, interestingly, um, the paperwork or the agreement uh, for that uh, terrestrial route was signed in 2002. And uh, today it's being expedited. So the goal is to cut delivery times from St. Petersburg to Mumbai from the current 30 to 45 days uh, to about 15 to 24 days, which in turn will allow to double the freight volumes by 2030. So crucially, uh, the countries bordering this corridor um, uh, have a have among the largest oil and gas reserves in the world, but also very importantly, a combined population of 1.7 billion people. So with this southward corridor reopened, uh, the idea is that it may eventually branch out to Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and the other Gulf states, uh, Africa, and eventually Southeast Asia. So Russia hopes to build a new trading network to complement its economic relationships with China currently. Thank you, Natasha, for so much for just going um, through your thoughts on how just we've seen flows shift. Um, now, we've talked about de-dollarization and why this is a slow-moving trend, but you've pointed out that we've seen um, you know, substantial diversification of currencies used to settle commodity trades. So beyond Russia, what other countries are exploring the acceptance of payments in currencies other than the U.S. dollar? Yes, thank you, Joyce. This is this is an excellent question. Um, so crucially, Russian products exported currently eastward and southward, uh, southward will either be sold in the local currencies of the buyers or the currencies of the countries that Russia perceives as friendly. So this is not something new. The trend started in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea, but the trend accelerated in 2022, which saw uh, a large and growing proportion of energy being priced in non-US dollar denominated currencies. So today we estimate that uh, slightly under 20% of the global oil is being traded in the other than uh, US dollar currencies. So it's on top of Russia, we have Iran and Venezuela, the two other sanctioned countries that are offering their, their oil in non-dollar, uh, in non-dollar currencies. Uh, again, you know, most of the dollar, most of the oil world's oil is still sold in dollars, but with Russia, the second uh, largest exporter of oil, is selling its petroleum exports in the local currencies of its customers, other producers might find themselves following suit. So, for example, 
Um, in the news, we've seen recently that Saudi Arabia is exploring uh, the acceptance of payments in other currencies. So, for example, the talks uh, of Saudi Arabia with China over yuan-priced oil contracts have been ongoing since 2016, uh, but that talks accelerated reportedly in 2022. Uh, the Saudis are also considering adding yuan-denominated futures contracts in the pricing uh, model of their Saudi Arabian oil. Uh, among buyers, uh, India, China, Turkey, uh, all either using or seeking alternative to the U.S. dollar. Uh, notably, and this is an interesting trend that we have been observing in 2022, this cross-border trade settlements in Yuan is gaining ground. Uh, for example, in 2022, some Indian companies started paying for Russian coal imports in, in Chinese Yuan, even without any involvement from the Chinese, Chinese intermediaries. Uh, Bangladesh also recently decided to pay Russia for its uh, nuclear power plant in, in yuan rather than dollars as well. Thank you, Natasha. That is um, actually a lot of shifts um, you know, from the commodities markets that have happened in a very short period of time. Let me turn now to our final speaker, Alex Weiss from our strategic research group who focuses on long-term strategy issues. So Alex, um, you know, apart um, from the commodity markets, is de-dollarization occurring at the macro level? So from a macro perspective, there's a lot of different ways that you can look at the question of de-dollarization. Uh, one of the most common is looking at the IMF COFA reserve allocation story. Uh, in that data, since 1996, uh, the share initially increased from 59% US dollar to 73% US dollar share in 2001, and then steadily declined to 58% US dollar share uh, as of the end of 2022. There is a little bit of volatility there. If you look at allocated reserves at a constant exchange rate, the decline over the last 20 years is a bit more appreciable, and there's an argument that it accelerated after 2014. So on the allocated reserve side of the story, there is an argument there's been a little bit of a move. We've argued that that's actually part of the story. And the reason why is allocated reserves are an increasingly smaller share of total foreign assets of the M countries. Our interpretation of this is that sufficiently large self-insurance buffers have been built, and the return on these reserves is very low compared to some other assets. So increasingly, this asset accumulation is happening through other investment vehicles like sovereign wealth funds. And we know that sovereign wealth funds invest in global bonds and equities. And we also know that since the GFC, the US dollar share of global bonds and equities markets has steadily increased to about 60%. So if you combine these reserves with these sovereign wealth fund asset holdings, our estimates are that the dollar share has actually remained in a, in a relatively tight range since 2000. So the story is a little bit mixed. Uh, that said, I think it's perfectly natural to expect some de-dollarization on the margin over the coming decade, reflecting the geoeconomic and geopolitical shifts that we're seeing in the global economy. In terms of what it would take to see a, a faster or a deeper de-dollarization, I think you need two things. The first is you need an adverse shock that seriously affects the safety or the perceived safety of the dollar or US markets. And that shock needs to be worse than any of the sort of shocks that we've seen uh, since the Second World War. On the other hand, I think you also need to see 
some political, financial, or economic reform uh, in China, which enhances the credibility of renminbi as an alternative. That's not to say that uh, it cannot gain a larger role in the absence of full liberalization. Uh, I think that that can happen through trade invoicing, uh, proliferation of renminbi swap lines and offshore markets. So I will expect, as I said, a little bit of movement there regardless, um, but faster or deeper requires some, some noticeable shock to the status quo. And you've said that this is very slow moving, but what would it take for the world to see faster or deeper de-dollarization than you highlight? So de-dollarization and the adverse shocks that bring it, whether they be political or geopolitical shocks, for example, would have a broad array of implications for a long-term investor, largely coming down to a depreciation of the dollar and US financial assets and an underperformance of those financial assets relative to the rest of the world. Uh, it should also bring higher US interest rates. Now, the magnitude of these consequences should be commensurate with the speed and the depth of the de-dollarization scene. In terms of hedges, an obvious hedge is to be underweight the US dollar. Within equities, it should particularly adversely affect large financials in the US. Uh, and there's also an argument that with high real yields that should adversely affect, say, the tech sector, whereas we have previously documented that our performance of the healthcare sector in the long term appears to have been robust to higher real yields. We also previously discussed that value tends to outperform growth in a rising real yield environment over the long term. Uh, in fixed income, rising real yields along the length of the yield curve should motivate an investor to approach their duration management from the short or underweight side. Well, that's really food for thought for the long term. Thank you to all of our speakers from around the globe for sharing your insights on the disruptions to the supply chain and global commodity markets and what it means for investors over the longer term and how we see global value supply chains shifting. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes of All Into Account, JP Morgan's global research podcast series, where we explore the key macro and market trends impacting financial markets. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining today. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read JP Morgan's research reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, JP Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved. This episode was recorded on July 11th, 2023.